Recruitment Journeys is brought to you in partnership with Vincere, the all-in-one CRM for ambitious recruitment businesses. No matter what your recruitment journey is, whether it's contract, temp, exec search or perm, if you're looking for a new breed of tech partner to help accelerate growth, speak to Vincere. Visit vincere.io forward slash mint for an exclusive offer for all subscribers of this podcast. Hi, and welcome to the Recruitment Journeys podcast series. My name is Pete Watson from Mint Recruitment, and we're in Ottawa, or Rec to Rec, whatever you want to call us. And as an Ottawa, we spend all day, every day, talking to recruiters about their careers. That's kind of what we do. We've been around since 2004, placing recruiters into Australia, the UK, Asia, and the US. And in those 15 years, we've seen pretty much every direction in which a recruiter can take their own personal recruitment career. So in this podcast series, we're going to interview recruiters all on a different path, each with a different destination, and we're going to hear their individual stories about how they got to where they are today. So if you're a recruiter and you're thinking about your next chapter or your future journey, and you just want to hear about how others did it before you, then please sit back and enjoy Recruitment Journeys. Welcome to episode six of the Recruitment Journeys podcast series, titled The Contingency Recruiter, who successfully transitioned into executive search. So in my 17 years in Artuar, I've been approached by countless contingency recruiters over the years who, for whatever reason, have fallen out of love with contingency recruitment, and they see their future in executive search. Some make it, but truth be told, most don't. But my next guest certainly made it. Verge Dasneves is a partner at SHK, leading the CFO practice. And in this podcast, Verge tells us how he made the almost unbelievable leap from the S3 group into the number one executive search firm in the UK back in 2013. So if executive search is on your career radar, this is a must listen. Hope you enjoy it. Verge Dasneves from SHK, good morning and thank you very much for being involved in Recruitment Journeys, the podcast series. Morning Pete, thanks for having me. Verge, well thank you. So look, the, um, the, the, the concept of this podcast, and uh, you may have heard some of the ones that we've, we've put out there thus far, it's called Recruitment Journeys and it's all about trying to inspire people who will be thinking about what their recruitment career looks like and uh, Having done my job, rec to rec for many years, I am regularly uh, approached by people who are experienced recruiters who uh, want to pursue a career in executive search, which is exactly what you did, Verge, and that was your recruitment journey. So for, this, for the purpose of this, this podcast series, um, Verge, we're, we're going to call you the, uh, the recruiter who moved into executive search, and I'm very keen to understand why you came to those decisions, how you made it happen, you know, what it was like when you made that transition into executive search, the highs, the lows, the challenges, and all the rest of it. So I'm just very keen to you know, find out what that journey was like for you, Virg. But uh, cracking on right at the beginning, uh, it's a question that I ask everybody that I sit down with, how and why did you, did you get into this wonderful industry that we call recruitment? 
Gosh, recruitment, now you take me back a, a decade, Pete. Um, <clears throat> I started my, my career off as an investigative journalist and with the Sunday Times, and uh, I soon realized that that wasn't the path for me. Uh, took some time off to go traveling, spent a year in Japan, ended up doing an MBA out in the UK. Um, I went into management consultancy because I really liked the consultative advisory side of, of that, uh, that world and that sector. I joined management consultancy in the financial services at a time where the GFC had really hit the UK and Europe quite hard. So things from that perspective were quite tough. I was interviewing at that point with a large agency out in the UK called S3, which I'm sure you and your viewers know a lot about. Mate, know, know them very well. I'm also XS3 myself. There we go, right? And um, during that whole process uh, for, for the interviewing, actually for a, another opportunity within the financial services sector, uh, one of the directors actually said to me, you know what, Verge, we've, we've got a pretty good relationship and rapport that we've built here. Why don't you come and uh, join us? So, okay, so it was that classic and cliched scenario where you were there for something else and they, they pulled you into their, their, their trap. Into the web. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Yeah, so um, I obviously did, did my little bit of research into, into S3 and uh, some of the other bigger firms, um, your Michael Pages and the Robert Walters of the time. And um, yeah, I gave it a go is what it came down to. I really liked the training um, facility, I guess, that S3 had, you know, from a global perspective. So, uh, yeah, that's how I, I, I got into the, into the sector. There we go. So, S3 Group, obviously, we're going to be, part of this conversation, we're going to be talking about the difference between contingency and executive search. Um, and there are different types and flavours of, of contingency, but, you know, S3 is, is real old school contingency recruitment. So your worlds, the world that you're in now, that you occupy now in the world back then, they couldn't be further apart. But what were your first few years in, in, in recruitment like, in the S3 group like? I mean, you, you stayed for about two and a half years, which is, which is typical tenure for the S3 group. How was it? Imagine. How yeah. was it? It's, um, I mean, I think like any, any recruiter in that type of model, um, you either get it or, or you don't. And I think if you don't, you fall out quite quickly. I was very lucky in that um, I did pretty well within a short period of time, um, leading a team you know, within two years. But it, you, you talk about that old school recruitment and it was exactly that. Mm. It, it was huge KPIs, um, you know, I'm not even exaggerating, around 200 calls a day, yeah. sending out speculative emails and you know, resumes. Yeah. And, it, um, and you know what? At the time, for whatever reason it may be, it worked. Um, it, was, it, was, it had traction. It was the model that worked in that specific sector, you know, the IT and engineering sector. Yeah. And you know what, for a, for a while, it was loads of fun. I mean, think, you know, lots of lunch clubs, um, you know, trips to Barcelona and Marbella and uh, driving Porsches. It was good fun. Um, but... It was a model that I realized wasn't for me, and I realized it very quickly. Mm. Um, and I hope I don't offend anyone here, but it was a model that I knew very soon after starting that it was recruitment that I didn't want to do. And mm. it was recruitment that 
a lot of my clients didn't want. Mm. Um, and that's what started pushing me to try and shift my mind slightly about there must be something better out there. So how, how, how did you first become aware of this, this, this other world of executive search? Because I remember when I was at the S3 group, if I'm honest, I probably had no clue what executive search was. How did it, how did it first appear on your radar? So I was pitching for a, um, a, a sort of general manager slash director role uh, within a client. And uh, they came back and said, I'm sorry, but we've got this retained with uh, a search firm. And I said, what are you talking about? Retained with a search firm? What does that even mean? Um, and then they told me about it. I was like, so you've paid someone ahead <laughs> of them actually delivering and you're okay with that. Um, and then I started doing research into this and I thought, gosh, what have I wasted my last two and a half years doing? You know? So it's, um, that, that's how I sort of got to understand and do a little bit of research into this other model that people were looking at. Um, and that was my first sort of foray into saying, you know what, things can actually be better and different here. Yeah. Okay. So you, you actually you broke into executive search pretty quickly. Uh, now you started with Odgers in, in 2013, which was only a few years after you'd started yeah. with the S3 group. Was it, um, it's, I mean, on paper, it looks like you made the, the move quite easily, but was it easy to get into executive search? Uh, yes, yes and no. So, and why, what I mean by that, Pete, is, and you, you know the S3 model and, and many other contingency models, you don't have time to do much else during the day, right? You're managing a team, you're still billing, uh, you don't have time to do lunch, right? Mm. So, for me... I wasn't thinking about joining a search firm um, per se. It was more about how do I change my mind shift at the moment to doing it differently. So at that level, can I start selling retainers? Can I start getting better relationships with clients? Can I start building a better business within my division? Mm. And through doing that, for whatever reason, it was putting the right noises out into the market, and I was actually approached uh, by Odgers really? to, to come across. Yeah, so I wasn't really proactively thinking about it, but at the same time, I was in my own mind trying to change my own way of doing recruitment. And um, yeah, I was, I was taking work away from some of the big search firms at that point, and um, obviously it got out there, and uh, yeah, they, they came knocking. Wow. And, you know, through doing my research, Odgers, and even now, they, they're ranked as the number one, you know, executive search firm in the UK. Um, and, you know, probably top five, top six um, globally. You know, huge organization. Yeah. So it was always the kind of pinnacle of what I wanted to do. And I think, honestly, if I look back on it, I probably didn't think I was worth a shot back mm. then. Um, you know, they, they only take industry leaders who have had a career in doing something in the industry, who are looking for something different to do. So they come and run the marketing practice or they come in, you know, after a 10 or 15 years of being a chartered accountant, come and run the CFO practice because they know what good looks like. Right? Mm. So that, that used to be the, the model that they used back then. And probably is for a lot of the Shrek firms even now, mm. um, is a very similar, similar model, right? So, um, it, it yeah it was it was an interesting time for me at that point yeah so was this was this approach out of the norm 
Um, you know, the fact that a, a big executive search firm approached somebody from the S3 group, and I say this with the greatest level of respect, <laughs> but having been in the S3 group, I wasn't aware of anybody being picked up or approached by an executive search firm. Was this common? I don't think it was. I'm not sure if it was common, if I'm honest, Pete. Um, I don't know if my MBA helped in that regard. Yeah. So uh, from a consultancy perspective, obviously I was with uh, KPMG for a short period of time as well. So that I think added a, a, a different element to what they were looking for. Mm. So came from industry, had a consultancy background, MBA plus recruitment experience. I think for them at that point is what they were looking for you know, from a, from a consultant. Um, so out of the ordinary, probably, you know, putting the right types of noises and messages out into the market, I think maybe led to that happening. Um, yeah. Did you appreciate the opportunity at the time? Absolutely. You did? I jumped at it with even, without even thinking twice, yeah. jumped at the opportunity. Yeah. Um, I think the, the directors at S3 thought I was crazy because I was leaving behind an incredible opportunity with them, lots yeah. of career growth. But I knew at that point it wasn't what I wanted to do going forward. Yeah. It was an incredible opportunity for me to network with the right types of clients and, and people mm. in the market to be able to do that. Mm. And tell me, did they throw you, once, once you, were, you had your feet under the, under the desk at Odgers, did they throw you in at the deep end or did you have to you know, serve time as a researcher, which is often a, a common mm. entry level role in the world of executive search? So I came on board as an associate okay. first, and um, it's it's not a researcher and it's not a, f- a, a complete fee earner, it's a bit of both. So on the one side, you're, you're, you're headhunting and you're doing interviews, the other side, you're carrying bags right, for mm. partners and you're still trying to find leads for your partners to go and win business for. Mm. So it's an incredible entry point into the world because on the one side, you get to learn about this search process and methodology that completely blows your mind mm. um, because it takes a bit longer. And, you know, the finesse that goes around with selling a process as opposed to selling a resume or a person mm. needs to be looked at very closely, you know, from those beginning stages, because that essentially um, describes what you're going to be later on in terms of the way you do search Mm. and at the same time as you're doing that you're going to all of these meetings with the senior partners um, as they're kind of two IC in the room and you're learning so much about them and about your client and how to deep dive into conversations how to actually just not even sell search and at Mm. the end of the day you know you get the assignment so it's uh, it was an incredible um, time to be thrown into the deep end right there and then um, to really learn about the industry and what the search model was all about. Mm. I, I am curious to know um, what it felt like to go from an environment which was, you know, work hard, play hard, very young. Mm. Uh, you know, I would imagine the average age within the S3 group would have been 20, 24, yeah, 25. Absolutely. And suddenly you find yourself in Odgers where the, you'd, be, you'd be... The youngest by far. By far. Yeah. <laughs> um, how did you adapt to, to that environment? Did you carry yourself differently? Did you try to present yourself differently? Or were you just verge and it worked? I think initially in the beginning stages, you fall into the, uh, the trap of wanting to present yourself differently. Mm. Um, so there is absolutely the stigma out there and especially in london and you know places like new york and potentially out in some of the bigger financial hubs in asia 
of you know search consultants being the pinstripe suit you know with flashy cars and you know well-trimmed uh grooming but very soon you realize that that's the artificial world mm. and um you know it's that age-old segment of people buy from people mm. and it's no different in the search world mm. you can show your success by wearing a good suit but it's really all about people it's what mm. it comes down to at the end mm. so initially you do you get caught up with it because you are meeting you know the governors of the bank of england and mm. you're meeting you know FTSE and uh you know uh, listed ceos and you want to you want to look the part but you soon realize in that meeting that those CEOs are probably the most down-to-earth people you're ever going to meet. And they're not wearing a suit and tie. And that's why they're successful. Yeah. Because they're normal. <laughs> because they are just genuine. Yeah. Um, so very quickly, you, you, you have this moment of self-awareness that mm. that isn't what sells. Um, it shows your success. And if you want to do that, great. But at the end of the day, it's just you. And you've got to sell you as a person. Mm. The brand gets you in, so it teaches you the process and gets your foot in the door. Mm. But at the end of the day, there's lots of good brands, right? I mean, there's another five massive um, search firms around the world who are doing exactly the same thing. And there's all, you know, three, four, five times that in terms of boutique search firms that are doing mm. the same thing and selling something different, right? So mm. it comes down to people comes down to people buy from people and the relationship you can build with them mm. as opposed to your 100 pound tie mm. so tell me did um yes i mean this is this this was six years ago when you when you broke into uh executive search how old would you have been six years ago verge uh 28 29 28 so, so still pretty young and you 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 are a fresh-faced young man <laughs> did the baby did face assassin the baby the, yeah, <laughs> the, the baby your age uh, present a challenge in certain meetings? Did, did, you, did you get a sense that when you were sitting down with these, these big cheeses of the city that they were like, who, who, is this, who is this kid in the room and why is he here? Yeah, absolutely. In the beginning, it's, um, it was a stumbling block, definitely for me, because I was pitching up against um, a lot of partners who had been in the industry for 20, 25 years, who had probably had a similar industry uh, career before that, you know, before even getting into search. Mm. So, um, and they were in the room with someone of similar stature, mm. right, from a, um, from a look perspective, right? Mm. So the sort of gray-haired, uh, silver fox type um, personality. Which, which you still don't have, by the way. Uh, which I still don't It'll have. It'll come though, don't worry. It's starting. I've got two youngsters, so uh, you can see in my beard the, the grey starting to come through. So it's definitely getting there. But for me, for me, the differentiator absolutely was much more about knowledge, much more about building a rapport that was able to differentiate myself compared to some of these other guys. Mm. Um, and often I would, I would have to walk away from certain assignments and certain opportunities. On the one side because I could see potentially that I was out of my depth from that perspective. But on the other side, they would look at me and they'd think, maybe I can negotiate lower fees with mm. this, with Verge, because I can go down the route of saying, oh, he doesn't have enough experience uh, in this market or networks or whatever that may be. So learning the value of saying no, 
uh, was, was, a, was something that I had to learn very quickly in that regard. Mm. What, was the, what was the most uncomfortable meeting that you've, that you've been in when you, you kind of had that sense that, look, I'm, 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 I'm either out of my depth or I'm not getting the respect that I, that I want in this meeting. It's just not going well because we're, we're, on, we're on different wavelengths. Gosh, I can name quite a few. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a tough one because on the one side, you want to you wanna consult and you want to advise, but you also don't want to come across as an arrogant prick. Mm. Right? And there's a fine line between that. And I think management consultants probably get that wrong quite often. Mm. Um, and a lot of the big five get that wrong as well. They go in and they say, this is our process and this is how it's going to be done. If you don't like it, we'll leave. Mm. So it's... For me, you know, it's going in there and, and above everything else, it's just sitting down and listening mm. to make sure that I understand everything, that I can tailor my approach to a solution that is best for both of us. So it's mm. a win-win on both sides. Mm. But without devaluing what we're there to do, and at the same time, I value my time incredibly highly. On the one side, I've got a young family, so I need to spend good quality time with them. And on the other side, I need to give my clients good quality time. And yes, that comes at a cost. Right? Mm. So learning that value of saying no and understanding that at any point you are in fully within your right to respectfully get up and leave. Mm. And just, you know, it might be just, you're just not clicking and you've got to click. Mm. You know, for a client to want to pay you a $100,000 retainer, you've got to click mm. and you've got to be on the right page um, in order to make that happen. And sometimes you're not, and that's absolutely fine. Mm. Right? You've got to realize, you've got to be resilient enough to realize that you're not going to win all of them. Um, you know, he's, he or she sitting in that C-suite um, level probably gets on better with someone else in, in the market. And that, for me, is absolutely fine. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where somebody a client is 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 looking to uh sell uh, give a retainer to you for your services but having found out more about the role you've come to the conclusion that you're actually not the best man for the job and you've turned around and said actually this is not this is not this is not right i'm 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 going to walk away from this retained assignment yeah it's tough to walk away from assignments Mm. Um, it really is, especially when you, you're potentially not hitting your target or you're slightly mm. behind on something. You, you want to take something just to get you back into the game, right? Yeah. Um, but I think that does devalue what you're there to do. Mm. Um, and your client is looking for either an expert in process or an expert in specialism. And if you're not one of those, I think you should be big enough and mature enough to turn around and advise them otherwise. Mm. I think a lot of consultants, both in contingency and retained work and search work, they just take things on um, just to get the fee, right? And just to get the, mm. the client on board. And um, I learned very quickly that you, you shouldn't oversell and underdeliver mm. because you're only as good as your last assignment. Mm. Um, and in a very small market, especially in Melbourne, in Johannesburg, where I did a lot of my work, um, you know, the, the areas of distinction and, you know, six degrees of separation is much more around two or three degrees of separation. Everybody seems to know each other. And that reputation gets around very quickly. And it goes back to being only as good as your last assignment. Mm. So we do, we learn very quickly that if we can't do it and we can't deliver, rather just step away. 
Yeah, it must be a very short life for an executive search recruiter if they're running around town picking up, picking up retainers and taking money up front and then not successfully completing the deal. You, your reputation will be tarnished very quickly, I would have thought. Yeah, it goes around. It absolutely goes around. Um, you know, we pick up assignments from some of the big, bigger guys because they can't deliver. And I'm sure that goes the same for, for many other organizations and search, you know, boutique firms. Um, but yeah, absolutely, especially in a small market, it's very hard to come back mm. from that sort of reputation. Mm. Okay, so going back to the concept of the podcast, Verge, it, it's all about inspiring people uh, to, to think about their future recruitment journey. So, you know, people might look at your profile and say, right, okay, that's, that's the kind of career I want. I want to, I want to get into, into executive search. But again, I speak to so many people and they say executive search is for me and I don't truly believe they know what it is. What would be, what would be your definition of executive search? It's a few things, but I think for me personally, it is business partnering in the truest sense. It's wanting to give your client the best possible outcome at the end of the day. Right? Mm. By, and it's using all those buzzwords, right, Pete? And this won't come as a surprise to anyone, but you, know, you truly become an extension of their business. You're an mm. ambassador in the market for your client. Mm. So, and it's a long-term play. That's, I think, what a lot of people, when they get into search, struggle with, is that, you know, McKinsey, a couple of years ago, they did a, um, some research through Harvard saying that, on average, a consultancy deal is done after eight meetings. Wow. Yeah. So, and those eight meetings have to be different. They have to be, there has to be value added at each meeting, right? Mm. So, if you look at that, I mean, eight meetings could take two years, Right. So if you started that first meeting today, in two years from now, you only get your first assignment from that client. A lot of contingent recruiters who have done contingent work for 10, 15 years will look at that and say, that's crazy, mm. right? Because it's a completely different mind shift to what mm. they've been doing. And that I think is the biggest difficulty a lot of people struggle with, is that you have to have that long-term play, but you've got to enjoy the hustle around the long-term play. And that's what, that's what entices me to keep going and doing this is what other value can I add to my client along this journey and along the supply chain right along this this value chain um, and that that's the the thing that thrills me the most about this yeah I mean that, that, that that's almost an oxymoron isn't it the, 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 the hustle around the long-term play yeah to, to a contingent yeah. contingency recruiters ears that probably doesn't make sense <laughs> yeah. it doesn't make sense to me does, does the does the speed or the pace of executive search does it ever frustrate you or you 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 accept that this is what it is it, it can it can be tailored to what clients want right and i think that's the key thing that you've that a lot of people miss is that it doesn't have to be a three-month process mm. it depends on the assignment depends on the client depends on what is needed if we can get it to a shortlist in two weeks Let's do it. Let's get it done. Mm. Because we know we can do it. We know we can deliver on that. But if a client wants a thorough global search, mm. um, you know, that takes time. It takes investment from both, from both sides. It takes various different meetings, diary alignments. Um, so it's, it's just something you need to look at 
case by case. Mm. And I think that's probably what a lot of search consultants forget that you don't have to, you know, one size doesn't fit all. Mm. You know, what you did for one client doesn't necessarily have to work for another client. Mm. Um, and that's, I think, where a lot of people fail in that they don't stop and listen to what the client wants. They just give mm. them what they think they want. Mm. Um, and that's potentially an industry downturn. Yeah. So can you explain to uh, you know, us, the, the, the contingency recruiters <laughs> who, are, who are thinking about executive search, in a, in a typical domestic uh, process here in Melbourne, what, what would the process look like? What are the different stages of an executive search assignment? Uh, so when, when you win the assignment, you initially start putting a, what we call a candidate brief together. Mm. Um, that candidate brief is an explanation of what the client wants and understands for the, the, the successful candidate to be successful in that role. And that would entertain, you know, the day-to-day technical responsibilities, but also the kind of the more emotional side, the personality traits, the cultural fit that will all be in there. We'd use that as our first headhunting method or tool mm-hmm. to go out and map the market, right? Um, that would then lead to a long list uh, within whatever time frame that may be. That long list is of... Uh, you know, interested candidates who are hitting the brief, that gets whittled down to a short list, you know, with the recommendations both from us and the client. And then those, the interviews happen, happen after that. And then hopefully by that time, everybody's managed the risk um, and litigated that risk so mm. that uh, you get to a, a successful uh, outcome. And then how does the payment schedule typically works? You know, typically in, in, in most models, it would be a third, a third, a third. Yeah. So you get paid up front, you know, for your time and your expertise. You get paid on milestones. Uh, some bigger firms do uh, time frames as opposed to milestones. So mm. the Hodges model, for instance, is day one, day 30, day 60. Um, the SHK model is day one presentation of shortlist and placement. Mm. So we put much more of an emphasis on delivery mm. within that, that retain model. So it depends on, on the search firm. It depends on what works for them. But that's normally the case. Is that it's a third, a third, a third. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So you mentioned headhunting earlier, which is a, uh, a real art in our industry. And mm. we've all got different styles. And I, I see and I hear so many... Uh, you know, bad examples of, of how not to do headhunting. Um, in, in, in your opinion, what is the, the key to a well-executed, successful headhunt call? Gosh, don't sell to them on the first call. Yeah. That for me is, is quite a key part. You know, yes, I know it's taken a while to get to that point to get them on the phone, but I feel that if I look back at my experience... Um, of having done this very few times have I been able to influence someone on the phone as opposed to face to face so a lot of the time I give them a very high level view of what it is I'm calling them about but my next question to them would be do you have 60 minutes to meet me for a cup of coffee so that we can talk this through Mm. and and this isn't a revolutionary idea but you know, face to face, you're able to convince and influence someone much more than a robotic voice over the phone, mm. right? <clears throat> and I think that's 
another key differentiator between search and retained work and the contingency model. In the contingency world, you want to you want to get that resume across to your client as quickly as possible mm. because you know six other recruiters are doing the same thing, right? So you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot from that perspective. Mm. Whereas when you know you're retained and you've got that exclusive mandate, you get to you get to have fun with it a bit. You get to go and meet the people. You get to find out about them, find out what makes them tick, build that rapport. Mm. So that if they are the successful client, uh, candidate at the end of the day, you know, two months later, it's so much easier to walk them across the line mm. uh, when they resign and when there's potential counter offers because you know all that information already mm. um, and you've built that rapport with them. And that's what I think takes a bit of time to, to finesse, mm. to learn. Um, and it's, um, it's a model that... It has worked. I mean, the, the biggest search firms have been around for 50, 60, 70 years. Mm. And it's not, like I said, it's not something out of the ordinary, right? People have been doing this for hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, and it goes back to my earlier statement of people buy from people. Mm. That's what it comes down to. Mm. What was the best piece of advice um, that you received from, a, from, a, from, from somebody who had been around uh, the executive search arena for a, a while? What was the best piece of advice that you received when you broke into it? As a, as a fresh-faced contingency recruiter? Um, Jamie Robertson was my uh, CEO in South Africa for Hodges Burnson, and he was a business mentor for, for many, for during that time and for many years afterwards. And one of the key things that stuck with me from, from him in those early days was he said, leave your ego at the door. Um, I was a pretty successful contingent recruiter. And he said, don't bring any of that ego through the door. When you go and meet clients, when you're coming into Rogers, always be willing to learn. And every day is a school day. Mm. And um, that is very true, uh, especially from a networking perspective. You're going to want to just be a sponge with the people that you meet and try and gain as much knowledge from them as possible. And that, I feel, is sometimes some of the most overlooked elements of search is the amount of knowledge outside of talent and search that you can actually gain mm. from your candidates and clients just about the mm. market and the world out there in general um, and that for me is is one of the really key elements to why I keep going and doing this mm. um, is because I meet some of the most incredible people who are doing the most amazing things uh, both locally and abroad and for me to be able to spend 60 minutes with them is just incredible is, is, is that one of the best parts of being an executive search? Just that, that, that level of insight that contingency recruiters possibly don't get? I think so. Mm. I do. It's the type of level that you're dealing with. And, you know, contingent recruiters place CEOs and CFOs every day, mm. right? I mean, it's not out of the ordinary for them to place these senior roles. But from a search perspective, you have a little bit more time to be able to build those relationships and to get out there and to really get under the hood mm. of some of these these executives and some of the knowledge that they're able to give you um, just about the market in general, their insights into what potentially could happen six months from now. I mean, these mm. are industry leaders and thought leaders in their businesses. Mm. And the fact that they're giving you 30 minutes of their time should say something. Mm. So sit there, listen and learn as much as possible because you can use that elsewhere within mm. your own business and within going out and speaking to other clients. Mm. Um, it's incredibly helpful. Mm. Um, but yeah, another thing that Jamie actually mentioned to me that I, I keep 
to this day is a, a quote that he said is, um, if you fail to prepare, you're prepare, preparing to fail. And when I ever feel that I am out of my depth going into you know, a pitch or um, something it doesn't feel right, I make sure that I am the most over-prepared, well-researched person in the room so that I know that there are no surprises, hopefully, once we're there. Mm. Um, and that's, that's, that's been something that I think has, has stuck with me over, over time, yeah. Mm. Thinking about this, um, for want of a better word, stigma that <laughs> executive search might have, and I, you know, I, I've, I've been guilty of, you know... Putting us in a box. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, the, the, there is a belief that it's, you know, it's, it's 56, 56-year-old chaps all walking around in pinstripe suits, smoking yeah. big cigars, patting each other on the back and not let, letting anybody into the inner circle. Um, I know it's not like that. But would to you... To a certain degree. To yeah. a certain degree. But would you, would you say that the... Because the recruitment industry is changing. Would you say that the executive search industry is also changing? I think we have to. Mm. I think if we don't, we'll get left behind very quickly. I think with the introduction of very sophisticated internal talent teams, uh, very sophisticated technology that's coming on board, the, we have to differentiate ourselves from that. And you have to change, otherwise you will get left behind. Mm. So, yes, absolutely, you, we still have those, um, mm. that stigma attached to us. Um, and it depends on where you go. Right? So in London, it's absolutely still there. Mm. In, uh, in New York, it's still there. Right? Mm. But I think this goes back to my previous statement around those types of clients or, um, or partners, they'll be snubbed out quickly going mm. forward. Um, it's much more a people game now as mm. opposed to a little black book of contacts that you've had for the last 50 years mm. that are literally dying. Like mm. literally. <laughs> so it's, um, you know, for people to be successful now, you have to have a really good balance of good networks, but also good use of technology and a bit of out, out of the box thinking. And I think that goes a long way in this, in this market, mm. in this field. Mm. And where, in your opinion, where do businesses like SHK fit in the executive search landscape? Because obviously you've got the, the big five, mm. Shrek as their Effect. It's a terrible name, by the way. Yeah. I, I always I hear that I hear that Shrek reference, and I reckon most of the executive search people Cringe. will hate it. Yeah. <laughs> will hate it quite rightly. So you've got Shrek, the big five, um, but clearly, you know, businesses, great businesses like SHK are competing with those organisations. So what 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 role do you think SHK and businesses like SHK are playing in the in the executive search arena? For us, we are absolutely an alternative. You know to those big five mm. and we win a lot of work off the back of them not delivering on assignments mm. the the big element and the the feedback we get from from clients who have gone with one of the big five because you never get fired for choosing a big five right um it's like the audit firms you never get fired for choosing a big four you know to do your audit but the feedback we were getting is that clients feel very far removed from the process mm. and they feel the people working on the assignment because you normally got four or five people working on one assignment at mm. various different levels and stages they feel like sometimes those people are far removed from the assignment so you've mm. got researchers and associates who are doing the headhunting 
you've got the partner who sold you the dream in the beginning, but really isn't involved in it until the end again. Mm. Um, and I just feel there's, there's a disconnect somewhere along the line. And I think where SHK fits into the model really well is that the partner who is selling you the dream, the client on our process, is actually the partner that is doing the headhunting, who's doing the research, who's doing the assignment, who's putting the list together, who is interviewing the shortlist and who's presenting those shortlists to you. So we do it all, but on a retained exclusive mandate. Mm. Um, and clients, clients actually have given us the feedback that they appreciate that because we are, we're in it. We're completely invested in the candidates' um, lives. Mm. At the same time, we need to get a, a result for the client. Mm. So we've got both ends of the, the spectrum covered. Mm. Um, and I think that that's done us really well over the last couple of years. Mm. Speaking to the experienced recruiters out there who are thinking about getting into executive search um, and trying to work out whether they have the right mm. personality or characteristics to be successful in executive search, what would you say are the three main characteristics Gosh. required to be an, a successful executive yeah. search recruiter? Because I know I couldn't do it. <laughs> Why couldn't I do it? Uh, I think patience would be a challenge for mm -hmm. me. Uh, I, I'll be honest, I, the, the, the thought of sitting in front of a, an, an industry leader uh, and trying to talk intelligently about his market <laughs> terrifies the life. I can talk about recruitment all day long, yeah, but put me into a business that I know nothing about, I'll, I'll crumble. Mm. Uh, so bravery, yeah, bravery, yeah, my, courage, my, my courage absolutely, yeah. yeah. But, but, but what do you think of the three main characteristics yeah. of a su successful search guy? I think foremost, you've got to be inquisitive. Mm. So you, you have to want to be fully invested in wanting to know more and wanting to be more. The second part is good communication skills yeah. um, at different various levels. So knowing that if you speak to you know one executive, it's going to be very different to speaking to another one. So being able to adapt yourself to those different environments is also key. Mm. Uh, the third one, uh, resilience, a bit mm. of grit, mm. um, you know, to understand that you, you're not going to win them all. You have to say no to understand the value of saying no, uh, to walk away from assignments where you, you know, you walk out of that, that room thinking, gosh, have I made the right decision here? Um, and to back yourself, to absolutely back yourself. And I think going back to what Jamie mentioned to me, you know, eight, when was it, seven, eight years ago, um, just be the most prepared person in the room so that there aren't any surprises. And that takes time. It really does. You're not going to learn that in your first 12 months. Mm. Um, so being able to step back and say, you know what, I've had a successful career in recruitment, but I'm never going to be the most intelligent person in the room. And to understand that and to realize that, it becomes so much simpler going forward. What's the number one piece of advice that you would give an experienced contingency recruiter looking to make their, their first move into, into executive search? It's a mind shift. And I think you've got, to, you've got to get your head around that it's a different way of thinking. And I would start almost going back to where I began in this, starting to shift their own model where they are now mm. so trying to learn how to sell retainers trying to 
purely partner with their clients, mm. not just on talent. So advising them across everything mm. could be uh, remuneration, you know, the benchmarks across the industry, giving your clients something else that they think, oh, that's a bit different. Mm. Um, they don't just want to sell me a CV. You know, they want, we're going to talk about something else. Mm. So if they start practicing that and start doing that day to day, it might give them an understanding of what this world might be like. And then it would make their decision slightly easier if they wanted to make the jump or not. Mm. The, what I understand is that, especially in the Melbourne market, um, people are always willing to have a cup of coffee. And mm. that goes the same with search consultants and search firms. So if you're genuinely thinking of breaking into the search world and executive search space, do what you do with clients, phone them up, send them an email and say, this is who I am, this is what I've done, can I take you for a cup of coffee? Mm. You know, what's different from selling to your client as, you know, selling to a potential mm. employer mm. Know, going forward? And um, they will be absolutely happy to tell you about their business and what it's all about. And then it will give you an understanding of whether this is the right world for you. Mm. It's, not the, it's not the world for everyone. It really isn't. Mm. Um, and that's okay, right? Because <clears throat> contingency model absolutely has value mm. in the recruitment spectrum. And so does search. So it just depends on what you want from it at the end of the day. Well, Virg, thank you. We're, we're, we're finished. However, I've just, I, I, just, I would like to finish with like one juicy, juicy <laughs> question because we all know that um, the executive search world provides big, juicy fees. That, oh, that, that, that's kind of one of the, uh, the, yeah. the, the best parts of the, the, uh, the scene. So p- putting you on the spot, I hope you don't mind me answering, questioning this, but uh, you don't need to name names, but what was the biggest fee that you ever landed? Um, it was a, it was quite recently actually. Uh, it's about two odd years ago. I did a very big um, managing director role for a regional bank. So they were the regional group di- managing director for the bank in East Africa, and uh, the full fee was two hundred eighty thousand US. Wow. Um, wow. Split, split into three. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so that was that was my biggest one. That's yeah. incredible. I was a bit upset we couldn't get up to three hundred. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Virg, thank you so much. Um, I reckon if there are any people out there thinking about going into executive search, there has been an absolute uh, whole load of really really useful advice, there, and I think that'll be uh, that'll be very beneficial to a lot of people. Thank you, Pete. I uh, I've appreciated the time, and uh, yeah, I've enjoyed it. Thanks. Mate, thank you so much. Thank you, Virg. Cheers, Pete. Thank you so much for listening to the Recruitment Journeys podcast. Really hope you enjoyed it. Now, while we're passionate about bringing inspirational recruitment stories to our network via this podcast series, Recruitment to Recruitment is our bread and butter and our day job. So if you are a recruiter thinking about your next career chapter or your recruitment journey, see what I did there? We're always keen to have a confidential discussion with recruiters about what's going on in the market. So please feel free to contact me in the strictest of confidence on 0432 666-701 or email me at pete at mintrecruitmentgroup.com. Thank you so much for listening and please watch out for our next inspirational podcast interview coming very soon.